0: dot com slash lincoln odoo modern management made simple hey everybody before we get started i just want to encourage everyone here watch the select committee on january 6th hearings i think it is an important historical record of one of the worst days in our country's history and i think it's important that you are able to see for yourselves just what happened on that day who was responsible and that you can share that information with your friends and your family and your colleagues when they say none of it matters. Every bit of it matters. I hope you'll tune in. I hope you'll find all of our content, ask us questions, and now on with the show. Welcome back to The Lincoln Project. I'm your host, Reed Galen. Today, I'm joined by David Laughman partner at the law firm of Wigan & Dana, where he serves as co-chair of the firm's National Security Practice Group. Prior to his time at Wigan & Dana, David served as a federal prosecutor and at the Department of Justice's highest operational and policy levels, including the role of chief of the counterintelligence and export control section in the National Security Division. Recent clients include a third-party witness in the defamation lawsuit by U.S. Dominion Inc. against Fox News Network regarding allegations of fraud in the 2020 presidential election, and also U.S. Capitol Police Officers Aquilino Ganell and Harry Dunn regarding their witness testimony before the House Select Committee on January 6th, last summer. David, welcome back. Good to be with you, Reed. So David, later on, I'm gonna want you to put on your prosecutor's hat regarding what could happen following the January 6th hearings. But first, I wanna talk about the latest with the January 6th committee hearings. So for context, we're recording this on the afternoon of Monday, June 20th, the day before the fourth public hearing. So. From your perch, sitting there in Washington and actually having so much experience, not only in national security, but also with some of the officers involved, what have you made of the hearing so far and what are you still hoping to see?
1: Well, I think the House Select Committee has done a superb job. This is what happens when you allow former federal prosecutors to guide and direct an investigation and members, for the most part, set their egos aside. And that's why these hearings, I think, have been so well crafted and so impactful, particularly in the short time periods in which the hearings have been run. You know, there's nothing that the committee is learning from these hearings. They've learned through their own fact gathering what's been going on, and there's more fact gathering to occur. Rather, the hearings are, as you indicate, for the edification of the American people, and the most important consumer of that may be the United States Department of Justice, not, you know, Joe Blow sitting on his couch in Poughkeepsie.
0: That's true, but I think that what we've seen, I think there was a, an Ipsos poll that came out last week, I think, as we're recording this, that showed upwards of 60% of the respondents believe that Donald Trump should be prosecuted for the things that they're seeing, which I think is interesting. You know, there are overwhelming majorities, both among Democratic voters and independent voters, that prosecutions need to occur. And one survey I saw recently even had it at half the Republicans. So you're right that the Justice Department might be the main so-called consumer of this, but from your perspective, does the leadership, whether or not it's Merrick Garland or whoever, seeing those kinds of numbers, make it more palatable for them to pursue maybe people further up the food chain than they might otherwise?
1: You know, I'm not sure the hearings in and of themselves are going to impact the ultimate decision-making because the department in Merrick Garland, I know, feels strongly about this, as you should, is going to be guided by the same bedrock foundational principles of federal prosecution, in this case, as they must abide by in every case, do they have sufficient admissible evidence to obtain and sustain a conviction? And so I think they're going to look at the mosaic of potential criminal statutes that the facts put at issue and see what evidence they have, see how commanding that evidence is, keeping in mind that in a criminal case, they have to be able to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed the crimes that the defendant is charged with. It's the highest bar we have. And even more so in this case, When we talk about going up the food chain and possibly charging people, you know, in the close concentric circle of the former president or even the former president himself, that there needs to be a burden of proof plus, so to speak, to make clear that this is not a vindictive prosecution. It's not a prosecution born of political retribution. It's a Joe Friday, here are the facts, here are the evidence. And we're not going to be deterred from applying the rule of law simply because the potential defendant is the former president of the United States.
0: And because of that, it has to be even more airtight, right? Because we also know that somewhere in Trump's twisted mind, the best thing he thinks could happen would be that he would be federally indicted. It would make him what he loves to be, which is the ultimate victim, and give his people something to rally to him about. Do you think that the Justice Department takes that into account?
1: I think it's less likely that they will take that on board as a factor in exercising their prosecutorial discretion. Who ultimately wants to get inside Donald Trump's head and figure out what he thinks would be a benefit? to him politically. I think they want to simply make sure that they have exhausted their fact finding, and they haven't exhausted it yet, because we haven't seen the sorts of public-facing indicia of investigative activity with respect to the higher-ups that you would expect to see, witnesses before a grand jury, search warrants being executed. although there could well be a great deal of search warrant activity being exercised that's outside the public domain, search warrants for stored email content, for example, telephone records, all those things would not be in the public eye right now. But I think, and Mary Garland has made the unusual public statement read of saying that they're watching these hearings. I mean, in all the years I spent in the Department of Justice, I didn't sit around my office watching congressional hearings. I had a bunch of stuff to do. <laughs> so I, <laughs> right. I, you know, but they are because I think they're learning things through the fact-finding of the committee that, are not things that they are themselves tasked with doing. You know, they're not tasked at the Department of Justice with finding out what the story is writ large and telling it to the American people. They have a very narrow mandate to apply the rule of law, which intersects with the story, but is much narrower in that respect. But meanwhile, as we speak, we have seen an extraordinary outbreak of tension between the Justice Department and the House Select Committee uh, that I've never seen before in my life, where <laughs> the department is excoriating the committee for not being more forthcoming. And providing witness transcripts. And it would have taken a lot for two senior officials, I'm sure with the imprimatur of the attorney general and the deputy attorney general to send a letter like that. That signified to me that there had been a lot of back and forth, that they felt they had been reasonable with the committee. They weren't trying to intrude on the committee's proceedings. They felt like they were being empathetic with respect to the demands on resources the committee is experiencing. Maybe not as empathic as the committee thinks, because you know, It's a lot of effort to put on a hearing, and maybe it's too much for them both to be servicing Department of Justice discovery requests and putting on a hearing and engaging in an ongoing investigation. But in any event, I think that letter had the impact of causing Select Committee Chairman Benny Thompson to be a little more calibrated in his willingness to cooperate.
0: So that's interesting to me. I mean, is it that they don't want to cough this stuff up prior to the end of the hearings because they're afraid of leaks? Are they afraid of scaring off, you know, the witnesses they have lined up? What's the roadblock there? Or is it just sort of internal D.C. bureaucracy?
1: Well, hearkening back to earlier experiences I have had when I worked on the Hill specifically as an investigative counsel to the House Ethics Committee, where our investigations of public corruption by members or congressional employees sometimes intersected with ongoing criminal investigations by the public integrity section in the criminal division, there's a longstanding kind of historical, cultural impetus on the part of congressional committees not to share investigative work product with the Department of Justice. But it's more of a, I'm not even sure I would call it a policy, let alone a rule. It's been more sort of a historical tradition. Obviously, in the balance of equities, things have to give way, like, you know, preventing an authoritarian, anti-democratic, violent takeover of the United States government. That would seem to me to be a relevant factor to take into account and and maybe modifying that that impetus. So, you know, I think there's a little bit of that. I think it's fair to say that they are probably taxed to the extreme in conducting their ongoing investigation and putting on these hearings Still, you know, transcripts are transcripts, they're static things. That which is already in the can, it seems to me, they could share with the department, unless they feel in a given witness's case that it might possibly impact a future witness's cooperation or truthfulness. You know, the putting together of new transcripts. I mean, that's really done by court reporters working as contractors. I'm not sure why that would burden the select committee. So, you know, the truth may lie somewhere in the middle there, but at least that letter signifies the department fairly read, wants to go harder, faster than it feels it's able to go because of the slowness with which they're getting these transcripts.
0: Well, and I think it was recently that Chairman Thompson said that the committee would not be making a criminal referral. I don't know if it was about Trump or whoever to the Justice Department. A day later, maybe it was that same day, Liz Cheney said, well, we haven't made that decision yet. So do you think there's some hesitance to on behalf of, you know, the chairman who, again, is juggling a lot of balls. Let's be clear about that. But also, is the committee perhaps afraid of wading into a, what will be a hyper-political potential prosecution?
1: I mean, from some of the public-facing reporting, there's been some reported discord between some members about how to handle the question of referrals. I'm pretty sure Liz Cheney would probably like to make a criminal referral of Donald Trump. I'm sure Adam Schiff would. I'm sure Jamie Raskin would. I really don't know why, Chairman Thompson would not be if he felt the facts and the applicable law were there. You know, making a referral is not tantamount to a criminal charge. It is you're handing over to the Department a body of information and evidence that you think is within their enforcement purview and saying, look, here are things that cause us enormous concern. We think there could be violations of law here, but this is for you to decide the Department of Justice is the purview of the executive branch in the Department of Justice to make that call, not us. And so we're going to hand this flaming bag of shit to you um, for you to figure out what to do with. And please do the right thing.
0: So if you're looking at this, again, through your prosecutor's eyes, through your Justice Department veteran's eyes, as you see these witnesses coming forward, we see a lot of this on videotape, whether or not it's Bill Stepian, the campaign manager. We see Kushner. We see some of the attorneys that served at the White House. You know, I'm going to oversimplify this, David, and forgive me, because I'm, I only know uh, Rico statutes by mob movies. Is it like you starting with the low-level button men, you know, the goons on the street, and you're working your way up? Is that how you think the Justice Department would do it? And I guess my question would be, in the context of ongoing prosecutions related to January 6th, especially with the, the Proud Boys and this seditionist conspiracy charge, are they sort of trying to weave these things together even prior to getting the stuff they need from the committee?
1: Well, I think keeping in mind again that the investigation being run by former prosecutors, including Tim Heafy, who's a former U.S. attorney, um, someone I have high regard for, I think they have run this investigation precisely like a criminal investigation, a public corruption investigation, a fraud investigation would be run out of the Department of Justice. They have built it from the ground up and at each level have tried to learn what that level knows about the level above it, you know, to figure out, you know, who knew what, when, and obtain all the relevant facts in a chronological order to Make decisions about where to go next in the investigation. You know, the mosaic of evidence that has emerged over the last few weeks, I think, makes it more plausible that the president, in fact, reasonably foresaw or believed or knew that there would be violence at the Capitol on January 6th. Not only took no steps to prevent it, but decided to serve as an accelerant for it, did nothing to stop it, and even as it was ongoing, saluted the people perpetrating it by telling them that he loved them and they were very special. And so, you know, the combination of those factors might contribute to a determination by the department that the president, in fact, you know, corruptly intended to obstruct an official proceeding. He clearly intended to obstruct it. You know, the question is, will it be able to prove corrupt intent? That's going to be a subjective judgment. You know, that type of state of mind is often proved through circumstantial evidence, not through, you know, excited utterances that are the equivalent of smoking gun admissions. But we'll have to see where the evidence goes you know, closely related to that is whether there was a conspiracy to defraud the United States by fomenting knowingly false slates of bogus electors from these states.
0: Which we should hear more about this week. We'll hear
1: more about that this week. You know, clearly, you know, the president was in favor of that. You know, how personally involved was he in orchestrating that and giving direction uh, remains to be seen. Uh, We know he doesn't like to send emails or text messages, but, you know, increasingly, he comes across like the Mafia Don sitting in a social club somewhere in Queens, you know, giving verbal instructions directly or indirectly to carry out his his intentions. And at some point, I think a reasonable person will be able to assess, you know, whether he intended for a fraud to be committed on the United States government by uh, interfering with the counting of electoral votes on January 6th.
0: You know, we've been toying with an idea probably since last year that Trump might see once again running for national office as a shield against potential prosecution. Do you believe that that's the case?
1: Well, it would only become a shield, potentially, if he becomes president again, and we're back in that Catch-22 situation, which, by the way, is just a function of department policy. There's no court decision that is ever held that a sitting president can't be charged with a crime. It's more of a tradition. It's not a law. But that's a long game strategy to play. I mean, he wouldn't be inaugurated until January 2025. And I think if the department is going to make a charging decision, as to Donald Trump and decides to charge him, you know those indictments are going to come long before the general election you know would a trial occur in that time frame possibly not but i don't see a charging decision going into that time frame so thinking about another great mob movie goodfellas
0: right so at the end they got henry hill and his wife in the room and it's a uh, i assume it's a us attorney or maybe it's an fbi agent whatever it is and they're telling this guy like this is how it's going to go down here's what's going to happen to you here's what's going to happen to your family any flips. Take us inside that room where someone who, they were a fundraiser. They put on events for a living. They got caught up in something that they're now staring probably down the barrel of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of legal fees. And they're sitting there before a U.S. attorney and an FBI agent. Like, what's going through that person's mind, that interviewee's mind?
1: Well, a person confronted with that dilemma is trying to assess what is in his or her net best Interest in what the risk environment would be for making one decision versus the other. I mean, let's take, for example, the notion of whether wire fraud was committed here in the context of the massive multi-hundred million dollar fundraising scheme based on the false narrative that Trump had lost the elector. the election was stolen from him rather. And you have somebody, this is all hypothetical, of course, but let's say you had a major figure involved in that fundraising campaign who had a meeting with Donald Trump where There was discussion in which Trump acknowledged that he had lost the election, but wanted to proceed anyway with this massive fundraising campaign on behalf of his political aspirations. And so now you have somebody with with percipient knowledge of the would-be target, Donald Trump's knowledge, that the public campaign to raise money was all based on a lie, knowingly false to him, and the elements of a wire fraud offense could be made out. And wire fraud, as I've said before, is among a prosecutor's best friends because the dollar value of loss at issue staggeringly escalates the potential exposure of the defendant at sentencing. And those sentencing guidelines are just punishing in their mathematical application. And so, someone faced with heavy, heavy potential time would have a greater incentive to cooperate with the Justice Department than someone facing much less time in deciding to roll the dice. And if such a person could attribute admissions, evidentiary admissions, to Donald Trump, it wouldn't be hearsay if it's coming out of his mouth. When this person was credible and could be a coach and witness at trial, we'd have a horse race on our hands. So a couple of things. One is that I believe during one of the first
0: three hearings, I don't know if it was just in text, but the person who was the digital director for the Trump campaign basically said this was only ever a marketing thing. So like they knew, first of all, there wasn't a separate fund, which, you know, FEC law being what it is, like, you can call anything anything. But in this case, the difference, correct me if I'm wrong, David, here, is that it was in the furtherance, potentially, of the broader crime, which was trying to defraud the government, trying to overturn the Constitution, whatever the case might be. Am I right or wrong?
1: Right. No, you try, in this case, you'd be trying to defraud the American public, the saps that sent money to Trump's, you know, political organization.
0: So, you know, I remember being, David, in a courtroom, a federal courtroom once in a public corruption trial. And watching the assistant U.S. attorney work, the prosecutor work, and I can tell you, I'm sure as heck glad I was not on the stand in front of that guy because that guy knew his stuff cold, absolutely cold. So like, is the Justice Department, are they lining up their best and brightest on this thing if they think they got to go?
1: I'm sure that they have a cadre of superb prosecutors and agents working these cases. You can see the, um, enormous results they've gotten thus far in the hundreds of prosecutions and convictions they have racked up from the low-lying fruit of the people that physically attacked the Capitol up to the leaders of the Proud Boys and the other miscreant organization charged with seditious conspiracy. So they've done an excellent job under very difficult circumstances in a relatively short period of time. And I can understand why they felt it important to do it that way. You know, in my time as a former prosecutor prosecuting terrorism offenses, we wanted to get bad guys off the street we wanted to prevent the threat from occurring before it materialized. And we can't have people who have participated in armed insurrectionist attacks against the United States government to be wandering around the United States with access to weapons or plans to get the band back together during the next election. And so to a large extent, I think they have mitigated that threat, at least with respect to people who committed the attacks on January 6th. What worries me are the denizens of these creatures lurking, you know, under dark corners throughout this country who are intent on assaulting their state capitals or members of state legislatures or other state or local government officials who don't seek to do their malevolent bidding in the next electoral cycle. There will be ultimately at the end of each one of these strands of investigation read the preparation of what's called a prosecution memo. It's what every prosecutor at Maine justice or in a U.S. attorney's office has to prepare at or near the end of an investigation that sets out what they investigated, what crimes they investigated, you know, what the elements of the offenses are to prove those crimes, what the evidence is that they amassed, what evidence they have that can meet particular elements of the offense to prove it, what litigation risks there are, you know, what are the risks of bringing this case, there may be affirmative defenses, you know, there could be a risk of jury nullification in a particular case and lay it all out and make a recommendation, step up and make the tough calls. There may be tough calls to be made. I've made them before. In my career, sometimes at the expense of excoriating public criticism, but they have to be made here. And it's going to be the mother of all prosecution memos if one is prepared with respect to the former president of the United States. And then, so they
0: take that to the, uh, if it's the U.S. Attorney, Deputy Attorney General, Attorney General, whoever it might be, is then a grand jury impaneled where they then present the facts and ask for an indictment?
1: Well, um, ordinarily a process memo would be prepared before bringing a case to the grand jury. They would want to have approval up the chain of command. And this, I'm sure, would get the close scrutiny of the attorney general himself if potential charges against Donald Trump or people close to him were being considered, but only upon being authorized to seek an indictment then would a prosecutor at a main justice or at a U.S. Attorney's Office then bring the case to present to the grand jury to vote on an indictment. Now, there may have been witnesses brought before that grand jury on many occasions during the course of that investigation, but when it comes you know, to crunch time about whether to you know, seek an indictment from the grand jury, at that point, prosecutors would have to have, you know, an explicit clear-eyed premature of the highest levels of the Department of Justice.
0: All right. So I want to go back to something you started talking about, which is, you know, the the likes of Enrico Terrio and the Proud Boys and these other folks out and about in the country. Just, you know, in the last 96 or so hours, David, we've seen testimony and photographic evidence of Mike Pence standing in a loading dock, his former, I think, deputy counsel saying, you know, they asked him to get in the car, and he's like, I'm not getting in the car. I'm not going anywhere. Just last week, Adam Kinzinger, member of Congress from Illinois, received a letter threatening his wife and his child as well as him. Dan Crenshaw, member of Congress, conservative Republican member of Congress from Texas, is accosted at the Texas Republican Convention for being, quote, patch McCain, being a globalist, all these other things. And now we saw out of Missouri today that the disgraced former governor, Eric Greitens, you know, put out an ad for hunting rhinos in which he has a pistol on his hip. He's carrying a shotgun with shells visible and then has, you know, a bunch of geared up guys in helmets and AR-15s storm a house as if like they're going after somebody. So I know that you were in the National Security Division. A lot of that, I assume, had to do with foreign terrorism, foreign intelligence threats. How do we deal with something like this, where this stuff To somebody like me, who spends probably too much time every day doing it, feels like we're getting to a little bit
1: of a fever pitch. It's positively chilling and continually astonishing that a political party known throughout much of its history as the party committed to law and order is now mostly associated with violent political extremism aimed at undermining the democracy that we have built over these hundreds of years. We can see that law enforcement at the state and local level, as well as the federal level, are already taxed. As we saw in Idaho a week or so ago, fantastic work done by law enforcement in Idaho in defusing what would have been a violent attack by a militant extremist group on an LGBTQ parade. Just horrific. And law enforcement is going to be playing whack-a-mole, I fear, continuously between now and the midterms in identifying these threats and neutralizing them. You know, there's no reason to think right now that Republican voters or voters that lean Republican are going to hold accountable political figures like the ones you mentioned who are making these kinds of menacing public remarks to intimidate other officials. They have decided that violence is an appropriate means to achieve political ends. And that's a place we've never been at at a national level here. We're not talking about the 19-teens or 20s when leftist anarchists were sending off bombs you know, in New York or the weathermen in the 60s. I mean, those were isolated pockets of political violence that were abhorrent, but never once did they threaten, you know, the United States government or our ability to function as a government.
0: Well, and I believe that in Coeur d'Alene, even, that the, the chief of that department and many of the officers actually received personal threats themselves for having done what they did, which was a bunch of people who were otherwise, you know, just trying to celebrate who they are, right, which should be the most of American things. And a bunch of goons, you know, get caught in the back of a U-Haul truck. And so how does that affect law enforcement? Because everybody worries. And when now you are someone who is supposed to be protect and serve, you're the peace officers, you're the law enforcement agency, you're the one who's tasked with keeping the order in law and order. You know, how does that affect law enforcement?
1: It puts a lot of pressure on them. It creates a risk for themselves and their family members. Some of them are probably being threatened, as you indicate. It subjects them to extreme duress at a time when they need to be on their A-game in identifying and neutralizing these threats across the United States.
0: Is there anything you learned in your time at Justice in the National Security Division that is similar from an overseas perspective that you see? Are there similarities between overseas terrorists and domestic terrorists?
1: I would put it this way. And I was chief of staff to the deputy attorney general on 9-11 and helped oversee the department's responses to 9-11. And then I became a line prosecutor prosecuting terrorism cases. And there were, after 9-11, multiple threats of mass casualty events that could have been perpetrated by jihadists within the United States coming from outside the United States. But none of those cases, even the attack on 9-11, never put at risk the United States government, never reflected a coordinated, viable effort to undermine our democracy. This is different. This is more threatening to who we are, who we must be. And I think it requires the same national, whole-of-government approach to identify and neutralize these threats across our country by mobilizing a fusion of federal, state, and local law enforcement to share information in real time about domestic extremist threats that may metastasize into violence. You know, it's now just
0: over the seven year anniversary since Donald Trump came down the escalator, which is hard to believe. It's been that long, but maybe it's not. But, you know, as an old advanced man, as the folks have heard me say, like I did more rallies, you know, than I can remember. And, you know, we were always on protester lookout, but, you know, we were never told, like, you get a hold of one of those guys, you beat the hell out of them, right? It's like if there's someone there, it's a quote unquote private event, the local PD can take care of it, right? Like we weren't even supposed to touch the guys, right? Just find them and, point the locals to them. But now we had a situation where a candidate for national office and then subsequently the president of the United States is invoking violence, you know, kick the hell out of that guy, I'll pay his bills. Even when he spoke to the cops, remember, maybe you hit their heads on the door. And so it just sort of opened this Pandora's box to use an overused phrase. And how do you close that box? How do you put the demons back in it?
1: I mean, I don't think we can put the Donald Trump demon back in the box. He is who he is. And the most we can do is try to contain him. Think of it as a policy of containment, as in the post-war era in Europe. And so we have to contain him by bringing the resources of the federal government to ensure that state and local elections and federal elections can proceed smoothly without disorder, without threat, that people who seek to cast their ballots can do so freely without intimidation, that those ballots are actually counted, that those ballots aren't being thrown out later to achieve some other outcome that the losing party wanted. I mean, there's multiple layers of this that we have to be mindful of to protect the democracy that we love. Stuart Stevens, one of our senior advisors, he's you know, done many elections here, but he's also done many
0: overseas. And you know, I think he was doing a, a race in Africa once, and he said it brought him up short when one of the people he's working with said, well, you know, democracy means somebody has to be willing to lose. And you know, that's one of those, to your point, David, like we're, we're faced point blank now with a man who refused to lose and then to go to the last hearing, to bring it back to the hearings, Judge Ludwig said, you know, Donald Trump and his supporters are a clear and present danger to the future of the democracy of the United States, because something that we've been saying is that, you know, in 2022, the wrong people win. In 2024, they just might steal it.
1: That's right. It is absolutely chilling and scary. And one of the upcoming hearings I particularly dread the most Reed, and it's going to be the one that focused on the effort to mount a coup at my former department, the Department of Justice, to decapitate the leadership of the Department of Justice through an effort by a low-level environmental lawyer to usurp the authority of his boss, the acting attorney general, to carry out the political agenda of the President of the United States. And I think we came within a hair of the hijacking of the United States Department of Justice. And I can't think of anything scarier than that. And that's how close we came. If there's another Trump administration, you know, you may just see acting secretaries and cabinet officials across the spectrum who are basically puppets that he can manipulate. We saw that's what he was trying to do in the dying embers of his his administration. You know, what if the Secretary of Defense had been fired sooner than Esper was? What if they'd put in, you know, one of these cult member minions in charge of the Department of Defense? At CIA, there was a threat to impose a political functionary. These are the types of things that I used to observe in my callow youth as a young CIA analyst looking at regimes that we were the complete antidote do. How do we go around the world trying to instruct other countries on the rule of law when our rule of law institutions are teetering?
0: I think that's right. And, you know, now to bring January 6th and this idea of violence, unfortunately, together, I mean, they're inextricably entwined anyway, is Greg Jacob, deputy counsel to Pence. I don't remember who he was talking to, but, you know, They're going through all this stuff, you know, about, you know, what's going to happen, what's going to happen. And he says, well, you know, this will all get fought in the courts, but eventually it's going to end up in the streets. And the guy from the Kazowitz law firm, too, who I think has been, I would probably just watch his testimony just for the feeling of it, said to Eastman, like, you can't steal 78 million people's votes. Like, you steal 78 million people's votes, you're going to have riots in the streets. And Eastman said, well, once in a while, you have to have a little blood in the streets in democracy. Like, that mixed with what you're talking about. Is what concerns me is that you know you have all you know this guy Jeffrey Clark you know these people who want to take out Haspel and Esper and all these other folks right there are people that will do this if given the opportunity they will be the Adolf Eichmann of their time they will be the middle manager who's willing to like make sure the boxcars get where they're supposed to go and will have no compunction whatsoever about it
1: I fear you're right Um, and that's why we have to lean as far forward as we can without inadvertently violating the rule of law to identify and neutralize threats before they metastasize into outright political violence.
0: Yeah. And that's, you know, certainly I think my fear individually and and our fear collectively is that, you know, as you have probably seen and we've seen throughout history, you know, it only takes one spark and we don't know where the spark comes from. We don't know where it is. We don't know when it'll be, but it's out there. You know, the Flint and the rock are looking for each other and we just have to hope they don't meet. Well, listen, David, I want to thank you for making so much time for me today. Before we let you go, where can our listeners find you on
1: social media if you're on it? My Twitter handle is at David Laufman Law. Feel free to follow me there or at me as you wish.
0: And as always, gang, you can find me on Twitter at Reed Galen on Instagram, reed_galen_lp underscore Galen underscore LP. David Laufman, thank you once again. And everybody, we'll see you next time. Thanks again to everyone for listening. Be sure to follow and subscribe to The Lincoln Project on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or however you listen. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. To connect with us, follow us on Twitter, at Project Lincoln. And for more information on our movement, to join our mailing list, subscribe to our newsletter, or make a contribution to our efforts, visit lincolnproject.us. Also, be sure to check out our LPTV lineup, including The Breakdown with Tara Setmayer and Rick Wilson, which airs Tuesdays and Thursdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, as well as We're Speaking with Lisa Senecal and Maya May, which airs Wednesday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern. All shows you can stream live on The Lincoln Project's YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter pages. And we'd love you to join us for our newest show, Lunch with Lincoln, which airs every Friday at noon Eastern on our YouTube channel. For The Lincoln Project, I'm Marie Galen. See you on the next episode.